Good morning. So we are now a couple of weeks into our series entitled Angry Red Letters, where we are looking at some of the most passionate and rich um, speakings, teachings of Jesus that we have in all of the Gospels. We've specifically been looking at the heart of Jesus. What seemed to make him tick? We're doing a couple of weeks here where we find the things that get under his skin, the things that he really wants us to know he wants us to do different than the world. And after this series, we're going to pick up talking about all the things that made him smile and happy, things we need to be emulating. This morning's story is going to find us in Mark chapter 11. I will have the verses behind me, but if you'd like to follow along, uh, go to Mark chapter 11 now. I want to be very clear about something up front. My objective in this sermon is very simple. I want us to walk out of here this morning, making Marysville Church of Christ more accessible to everyone. My goal is that we leave here being willing and impassioned to share the love of our family to others. And this morning, Jesus is going to teach us how to do it, and sometimes how not to do it. Mark chapter 11 picks up after one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the triumphal entry of Christ. The triumphal entry, you'll remember, and if you don't, you're about to learn about it, was the story of Jesus riding in victory into the city of Jerusalem. This was done in the likeness of Caesar. After Caesar would successfully conquer an area, he would lead a triumph into Rome, where he would lead himself on a white stallion tall above the rest, with thousands and thousands of Roman soldiers in ceremonial garb, trudging along behind them. Incense filling the streets, shouts of Caesar, Caesar everywhere. And behind them, the prisoners of war as spoils. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he had his own triumph, but it was a farce intended to show the sarcasm of power. He comes walking in, not on a white stallion, but on a colt, two sizes too small, with his feet dragging in the dirt, having to lift himself up. He did have his mighty warriors behind them, but they weren't soldiers in armor. No, they were fishermen and kids. And the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, weren't the Roman citizens in wealth and splendor, but prostitutes and tax collectors. What a stark contrast this scene is. The reason it hits me so much is because it shows us right from the get-go of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, I'm different than what you think. And I'm about to turn the world upside down. And he would do that a couple of days later when he dies on the cross. But as soon as he's done with his triumphal entry, he marches directly into the center of the temple. And there we pick up. As he charges through the gates with his army in tow, with the shouts of Hosanna behind him. Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17. Jonathan, if you can go to the next slide for me. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
when we read this story, it's easy for us to get uh, a little off. I, uh, the first time I ever really was confronted with this story in a teachable context was when I was told, like, we weren't allowed to sell anything in the church. I was a Boy Scout, and I was selling popcorn, and I was told that I was breaking this story. Jesus doesn't like it when we sell things in church. I think that's a fine interpretation, but we're missing the mark, aren't we? The story is not about bake sales or popcorn sales. What's it about? Access to God. I find it interesting that whenever we approach stories like this in the Bible, our first tendency is to take the simplest and easiest approach rather than letting the words of the story actually teach us. What is this story saying? Jesus was furious. Not at the fact that there was selling of things. That actually was dated back to Solomon. But because of where it was located. Let's break this down just a bit. Money changers, the idea of money changers was an old biblical concept that actually started in Solomon's reign when he built the temple. The reality is, if you're a Jew that lives in, let's say, Egypt, and you have to travel all the way back to Jerusalem, you're going to be carrying with you currency that is Egyptian. You know how helpful Egyptian currency is going to be for the Israelites? It's not. So being able to go there and exchange your coins for something usable is helpful in order to actually make your donation effective for the temple. Not only that, but the idea of buying and selling in the temple wasn't wrong because, again, if I'm traveling from Syria or if I'm traveling from, especially in the time of Rome, if I'm traveling from Spain, I do not want to have to buy passage for all of my sheep and goats and birds that I would like to offer in the temple. What makes a lot more sense is getting to the temple and then buying those things to offer them to God. Again, so far, no sin here. You're allowed to buy the sheep. They weren't doing anything wrong in that regard. Then why was it that Jesus got so mad? Why did he start flipping tables and whipping cords? It was because of what was happening and where it was happening. The temple was broken into three sections. You walked in and there was a center courtyard. Okay? This is not like the temple in the Old Testament. This is the temple that was built the second time around. Follow me for a second. We're going to have a virtual tour led by me. We walk in. There's a courtyard. This is a general area everyone was allowed and invited. To the right, there was a doorway. That doorway would lead you to a side part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. That court is where the Gentiles could go. If you weren't a circumcised Jew or come from a Jewish line, you weren't permitted to go forward into the temple, but you could go outside over here. Once you would walk through the doors, then you were in the court of women. Very, I guess, aptly named. That was the place where women could go and worship God. But if you happen to be one of the insiders, one of the Jewish men, then you could walk through the court of women to the third chamber, the most holy one. It was quiet. It was peaceful. It was the most ornate and beautiful. That was the court of worship where all men could go not condoning this. I'm just simply saying that's the way it was. However, what was happening was that the money changers and the people who were trying to sell goods weren't permitted to be in the middle courtyard right when you first walk in. It was against the custom because it would be too hectic as people were trying to come and go. And of course, they weren't going to put the money changers and the market sales inside of the court of women where the actual important Jews are, right? No. So where did they put all of the market? In the court of the Gentiles. Why? Because who cares? They're the outsiders anyway. 
Can you imagine you're a Gentile trying to come? You've traveled all of this way to go see and worship in the temple God. And you get there and you see where you're supposed to go and you're having to fight your way through different stalls and market things. And then you get into the room where you're going to offer your prayers and sing your songs of praise. And the only thing you can hear is a cacophony of bird sounds. I got two doves over here, two doves, two doves, three doves. Over here, three doves. You want three doves? I got three doves. Three doves right over here. Come on, come on down, come on down, come on. That's what you would hear. Now trying to imagine reciting a psalm or being in quiet meditation as all of that was happening. It wasn't the fact that there was doves or buying and selling. It had to do entirely with the fact that they were stopping people, outsiders, from worshiping God. They were putting obstacles in their way. Jesus became furious. The angriest you'll ever see him in the Bible, exclusively because the people who wanted intimacy with God couldn't get it. Which makes sense. Go to the next slide for me. Because this is always God's MO. Jonathan. Thank you. The house, the house of prayer imagery that starts there at the beginning of the quotation is going to be the first place we're going to really dive in. But this morning's lesson, we're just going to go through that last line Jesus said. House of prayer, all nations, den of robbers, and then we're going to apply it to us. Pretty simple outline, pretty simple lesson, pretty challenging for us all. Let's jump into what it means to have a house of prayer. Go to the next slide, please. Thank you. God is relational love. That's just who he is and what he's always been. We see that uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John, writing an epistle, articulates the nature of God in a very simple way. God is love. I can hear the song begin to play in my head. God is love. That's the nature of God. As an aside, I find it interesting in the Western church, we've called John the evangelist for a really long time. That's like his nickname, John the evangelist, the apostle. Because he was so good at like converting people and he was kind and gentle. But in the Eastern churches, they call him John the theologian, the one who knew God. You want to know why? Because of 1 John 4. Because they understood something that a lot of times we miss. The true nature of God is love. Specifically, relational love. Love that needs community. Love that desires community. Love that has to be expressed and received. We see that not only in his nature, but also in his trinity. There are three of them, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are one God. How are they combined? Relational love. Constant, consistent, relational love. But not only that, we see it in extension. 1 John 4 continues and says this, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. What is he saying? God is love. He has a trinity of love, but the most powerful and the most beautiful and the most profound truth of God isn't that. The most powerful, profound truth of God, and I want everyone to listen in on this because this is important, is that God wants you in that community of love. One of the things that, one of my favorite lines I ever read was that the Trinity is not a closed unit. The Trinity is an open one. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a community and relationship of love, but invites you to jump in with them. The same level of love they're willing to offer you that they offer each other. 
And they want you to be right in the middle of it all with them. A community of love. And God shows that in this next slide as we start seeing through God's objectives. As we start looking through, Jonathan, next slide. Thank you. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. On the very inauguration, the day that the, the temple ground is being broken and construction is underway, we see right there at the beginning, God's coming to live with his people. He wants to be where they are. Why? Because God is relational love. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you and never leave you. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Past, present, and future, God always wants to be with you. Why, you may ask? Because relational love is his endgame. He wants you in with him. He wants you in love. Next slide. Temple living was kind of God's M.O., You can follow how he was willing to meet with people, where he was willing to go to be with them, to express that relational love. And by the way, I don't know about you, this is one of the most profound elements of God to me. Because look, if I'm God and I have heaven and angels fanning me and praising me all day, I'm living in luxury as beyond imagining and everything I could ever want I have, there is no way on God's green earth I am coming down to live in a garden or perhaps even more powerfully, a box or a tent or a room in a stone building or in flesh or perhaps most jarringly, in my heart. And yet these are all the places God has lived to be with us. God's relational love. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God wants to be there and express love to you. This idea of a house of prayer, next slide please, the, this next idea here, this house of prayer, is all about a place of intimacy with God. A place of intimacy with God. This idea is very, very important for the Christian faith. If you want intimacy with God, he wants it with you. That's what he desires. Your love and his love. Together. This idea of intimacy with God, with love with God, is so hard for us to fathom. Maybe it's because of our own insecurities, maybe it's because of our own weaknesses, or maybe it's because, and I think this is more true if we're honest with ourselves, because we're bad at expressing love ourselves. But this idea of a house of prayer is the entire purpose of the temple a place where you and where me could come together with God. Next slide, please. So we have here this next idea. God says, a house of prayer, in which he's saying what? My temple was designed to be a place of relational love. Me and you and you and me. We're going to come together and we're going to love. And we're going to do it in worship. And we're going to do it here. However, the second thing Jesus says is, this is a house of nation, this is, or a house of prayer for all nations. An equally important concept. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, God begins to prophesy, and he prophesies a future in which there is no insiders or outsiders, there is no us or them, but all people everywhere can worship God. Ironically, what is he prophesying about? The church. He's prophesying about the church. And listen to the language Jesus is using when he talks about the coming spiritual kingdom of God. 
I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. In Zechariah 2.11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and they too will be my people. I will live among you all. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. All these passages telling a beautiful truth. Are you an outsider? Come. God loves you. He wants a house of prayer with you. A place of relational love where you and me can be together. Where there is no outsiders or insiders, but all are under the love of God. That was the hope, right? No outsiders. No insiders. But what happened? Almost immediately there was outsiders and insiders. The Jews, the Gentiles, male and female, all sorts of divvy lines that we started creating. Still do. Today it may not be as direct as having separate courts for women and Gentiles, but, I mean, we have our own ways of doing it. We don't mean to, but we're no different. We try our best, but we still find ourselves here. This morning, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you an outsider or an insider? One of the things I love about Bible reading, and I do this all the time, I had a professor in college who really drilled this into my head. Stop always reading the Bible as if you're the good guy. That was his line. Stop reading the Bible as if you're always the good guy. Because we do that, right? We read the parable of the sowers, and we're like, oh yeah, I'm the good soil. (laughs) All those thorns over there, (laughs) gotta watch out. We read the stories of the Pharisees and we're like, oh no, yeah, those guys are terrible. I'm definitely like an apostle. We read the story of the exiles and we're like, yeah, we're the exiled. We're the Israelites. We're the Jews. We're not those Babylonians. But we need to be honest with ourselves for a moment. Are we outsiders or insiders? Are we the exiled or are we Babylon? Are we the Pharisees or are we the Gentiles? Go ahead to the next slide, please. Um, gonna, this next slide is going to have a whole bunch of data on it. I don't want us to get lost in it, so let's be very clear on my intent. My intent is to simply show us numbers. I'm not here to get in arguments about anything, about like religious beliefs or criti- criticisms of socioeconomics or politics. That's not my point. Go to the next slide. But one thing I found interesting is I was pursuing this idea of outsiders. Are we insiders or are we outsiders? I found this. The Bible defines outsiders in three terms, outcast, oppressed, and marginalized. Outcast, oppressed, and marginalized, those are the outsiders. As I started doing research, I realized something. 63% of Americans are active Christians. That's actually down from 1972, by the way. It was 74%. That's not the point of this lesson, just interesting stats. 59.7% of Americans are white, and 52.4% of them are in the middle class. The grand majority of our church fits all three of those brackets. Meaning, we're the majority in America right now which is a blessing, and it's great, it's fine. It's not a bad thing. Really, it's nothing. It's just a stat. But we're not an outcast. We are the majority. The idea of oppressed are people who are financially worked against. And yet in America, the Christian movement has 30% of the wealth. We are, 30% of us are considered wealthy. 24.7% of us are in the upper middle class, meaning 58% of Christians are actually in the upper tier of our economic structure in America. 
more than half of us, represent one-third of the wealth of our country. Of the 14.1 million millionaires in the world last year, 57.8 of them were Christian. We're not the oppressed either. We're not the outcast. We're not the oppressed. Marginalized are people whose ideas or beliefs are not represented in power. 90.1% of small town politicians, and I mean that like any mayors, governors, any of that statewide, consider themselves a a Christian. 88.2% of Congress considers itself Christian. Meaning what? The Christian faith is talked about from the highest points of power. We're not marginalized. So if we're not outcasts, we're the majority. If we're not oppressed, we're generally the wealthy. And we're not marginalized then may I suggest, next slide, that we're not the outsiders. In fact, we have more in common with Babylon than we do Israel. We have more in common with the insiders than the outsiders. And we relate more to the Pharisees than the Gentiles. Let me be very clear. Not here to criticize. I grew up in the family I grew up in, and I loved them. And I'm not upset that I am where I'm at. But this is just a reality of fact. One thing that really jumped out to me as I was writing this lesson is we're considering what it means to bring the message to all the nations is that I've got to stop viewing myself as an outsider to the world and start realizing that in the context I'm in, I'm an insider. I'm a Babylonian. I'm a Pharisee. Next slide. Not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, that brings with it a variety of important things that we have access to that other people in other times didn't. When I was, if I was a Christian in the first century having to hide myself under a cloak of darkness in a, bakeries, in a bakery in order to worship God in secret, I didn't have a voice, I didn't have power, I didn't have any opportunity to make any difference. I'm not. In just a second, I'm going to get in my 2017 Kia Soul, which is the greatest car ever made. And I'm going to drive down to my apartment, which is furnished. And I'm probably going to eat food that I'm probably going to buy a Taco Bell because I do not want to cook. (laughs) My life is not hard. And I'm thankful for that. I'm blessed for that. You are too. But what this does mean is that we have a massive responsibility given to us, right? Because as insiders and Babylonians and Pharisees, none of those things are intrinsically sinful. You could be a faithful Babylonian, and there were faithful Pharisees like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, or a guy later named Barnabas. But one thing we have to be careful of is the weight of responsibility on the shoulders. We will constantly be tempted to fall back into our pride, our arrogance, and our conceit, just like they were. We are constantly going to be challenged to stay silent or to fall into our own problems. But God understands that we need people with voices and power and influence and money to help the outsider become the insider. That's the whole point of the all nations language. Next slide, please. It wasn't wrong for the Pharisees to be Pharisees. The Pharisees served an important role in the temple. Barnabas was loaded. And you know what? God needed him. Wherever we find ourselves in whatever calling of life, we have to make sure that we're using the authority and responsibility God's blessed us with to bring the message to all the nations, to allow this place, this house of prayer, not to just be for those of us like us, but to be a house of prayer for all nations. Everybody. 
when we stop thinking so much about us as outsiders, we could start really buying into being an insider and what that means for the kingdom. But this provides a challenge for us. Cold. Ugh. This provides a challenge for us. When we fail to adhere to the all-nations model, when this place stops being a house of prayer where people can come from any place on earth, anywhere they are, and find intimacy with Christ, that's the minute we've messed up. And Jesus uses this next word. Next slide. Thank you. The den of robbers. This is what happens when we fail to be a house of prayer to all nations. Den of robbers. Harsh language, but we'll see that it's actually warranted. In Isaiah chapter 56, one of the most profound passages in Scripture, God is giving this, I mean, breathless hope. It's beautiful, beautiful poem. I will give them within the walls of my own house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could ever give. For the name I give will be an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I will bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbaths or the holy mountain of Jerusalem, or excuse me, and rest and hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. This is the passage Jesus is quoting. Because my temple will be a house of prayer to all nations. A breathless hope for an exiled people. A hope that someday all will come together. But Jesus quoted a second passage out of Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. And however beautiful Isaiah 56 is, Jeremiah chapter 7 is equally as scathing. Next slide, please. Has this house, declares the Lord, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. But I have been watching, declares the Lord. When the insiders, us, that's us, everybody, we're the insiders. When the insiders stop trying to work tirelessly to make this place a house of prayer for the outsider, when we fail our job as insiders, we make this place a den of robbers. We make it hard for the Gentile to worship, for the outsider to worship, and find a home and community here. This actually, this idea, next slide, was woven into the very fabric of Solomon's blessing and charge to the temple. As Solomon is going through and saying, these are all the things the temple will be forever, he says this line, talking to God. As for the outsider who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, hear them from heaven your dwelling place, and do whatever the outsider asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Ironically, God was laughing in heaven, I presume, during this beautiful sentiment, but as if God wasn't going to answer the outsider's prayer. God knew that there was going to be obstacles for the outsider and it wasn't going to be from him. It was going to be from the insiders. So how does this transition happen? How do we go from a house of prayers for all the nations to a den of robbers? What's the pivot point? What's the thing we can look at and say, this is the moment we messed up? Next slide, please. 
When it becomes about me, when it becomes about the insider, that's when we miss the mark. Jesus how many times said things like, I'm not here for the healthy, I'm here for the sick. I'm not here for the saved, I'm here for the lost. I'm not here for those who don't need it, I'm here for them. But as people, we become obsessed with comfort and consistency and what we want. Therefore, we make the house of God, house of prayer, really a house of me. What I want, when I want it, how I want it. Ironically, isn't that what they did in the temple? All the insiders, right? All the insiders were like, no, 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 no. We can't have these market sales and all of these things in our courts. Get them out of here. We can't put them where I, that would make me uncomfortable. It's hard to listen and hard to worship and hard to, so what we're going to do is we're going to take them and put them over there. If the outsiders have a problem with it, that's on them. But us insiders, we're going to protect our own. May I suggest to you that the, the actual thing they should have done, if they fully understood God, they fully understand his desire, those stalls would have been set up in the furthest courtyard where the Jewish men go. Because they should have had enough wherewithal to know if someone's going to have to sacrifice comfort, it's going to be me, not them. If someone's going to have to sacrifice, it's going to be me. Not the outsider, not the newbie, not the one trying to find God. Next slide. We're wrapping up here. When I was at Freed Hardeman, um, great school, I loved it. It was an awesome experience. But when I was at Freed, I was a freshman, right? Wet behind the ears, naive as all get out. The lectureships happened. The lectureships is a massive event down there. It's like a holiday. Everybody from everywhere that's anyone comes together, and it's really cool. You're going to learn a lot. But there was this bus that pulled up. Mercedes bus. You know, what, you know what I'm talking about? One of those like transit buses had the Mercedes logo on. I thought it was so cool. All these dudes came out decked in suits and ties. One of the responsibilities of freshman Bible majors is to guide people around campus. That's what you have to do, right? So I was wearing khakis and a polo. I was like, hey, welcome. And immediately the judgment started. How can you call yourself a Bible major? Where's your tie? <laughs> do you see his khakis? Where's his dress pants? All day I'm hearing this kind of stuff. Finally, I get to a lecture and I'm like, I am so done with these people. And I open up my Bible and I start reading because I'm following along because I'm trying to have a moment of intimacy with God through his word. And they lean over and go, translation are you using? I'm like the New English. And he goes, I guess we need those kind of Christians too. He turns around. I got up. I was like, all right. This has been real. See y'all. I walked into the Bible office. I'm like, I'm not guiding those people around anymore. Why am I telling you that story? Because I'm about to tell you. Because the idea is, is that in that moment, you know what I felt like? An outsider. They all dressed the same way, looked the same way, acted the same way, talked the same way, read the same way, and I didn't. And in that moment, I wasn't intimate with God at all. I was feeling completely left out, an outsider. They had crafted a scenario where I felt that I wasn't good enough to be in their presence to worship God. I felt like a Gentile, not a Jew, like an outcast, not someone valued. There was a new convert at one of the churches I used to work at, super passionate about faith, didn't know very much, it was just starting out. And uh, there was a family who a very tragic situation happened and they were in a bad situation. So we were trying to decide how to raise money. 
she brought up a great idea. Let's do a bake sale. But as we talked about, that didn't go over well. They were very critical of her, shouting her down. What? We, this is the line that got me. We all know that you can't do that. Well, guess who didn't know that? Her. Well, we all know became very insider language, making her an outsider. I can't go golfing. I'm terrible at golf. Let's, let's be real. The reason I don't go golfing is because I'm terrible at golf. But even if I was good at golf, I wouldn't go golfing because I don't know all the stuff, you know? There's like all these unwritten rules when you go to a golf course, all the things you're supposed to do, and I don't know any of them. And if, I don't like going to a place where I don't know all the customs because I'm sitting there like seeing up a shot and you have golfers walking by going, <coughs> yeah. And I'm like, I, that makes me feel off. I move the pin too early or I don't move it at all or I'm putting my bag on the green, which I learned, not acceptable. And all sorts of things like that that I don't know, but everyone else around me does and they remind me that I don't know. Until eventually I feel like an outsider, unwelcomed there. Why? Because in all of those examples, what was most important to those people around me was their insider status and making sure everything was like them instead of being willing to be uncomfortable for the outsider. Next slide, please. The reality is the house of prayer for all nations, and this is really important, zone in on this, please. It is not about the comfort of me. It's not about how I feel. It's not about what I want. It's not about keeping the temple the way it has been in the case of the first century. It's not about my plan or my ideas. It's always about the outsider. Always, 100% of the time. Next slide, and we'll wrap up. Do not work against an outsider, God says, for you were an outsider in Egypt, don't you forget it. And Romans 5.8, to us, God says the same thing. Don't feel like you're an insider, Christian. Don't get high and mighty because you were an outsider too. Jesus died for you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking out for your own self-interest, but the interests of others. Why? Because it's always, always about the outsider. Next, next uh, slide, please. But many who are the greatest now will be least then, and the least then now will be the greatest then, Jesus teaches. Paul says, even though I am a free man with no master, this part gets me. I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. This is the passage where he says to the weak, I'm weak, to the strong, I'm strong, Jew, I'm a Jew, Greek, I'm a Greek. Whatever it takes, the outsider comes first. Do not deceive yourself. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may actually find wisdom. What are all these passages teaching us? The same message over and over. The minute we start making the house of prayer the house of me or what I need or what I want, focusing on the insiders and not the outsiders, we've missed the point. To use the example earlier, I think it very profound how different the story would be if Jesus walked into the temple and all of the courts of sales and market shares and all of that was where the most devout Jews were because they understood we can handle it. We'll get uncomfortable. We'll deal with the barking of animals and the, and the cooing and the sails. We'll deal with all that. Let's make sure the outsider doesn't have to. How much different would that have been? 
I don't think Jesus would have walked in flipping tables. I think Jesus would have walked in praising their name. Next slide, last slide. Oh, sorry, I lied to you. Next slide. This is the last. Nope, next slide. There we go, this is it. Thanks, guys. No clicker makes it tough. Appreciate y'all. Let's end it with the Marysville Church of Christ. Let's bring it home. God wants a house of prayer, a place where anyone can be intimate with God. One for all nations, all the outsiders. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's here. And no one cares about their status. And yet, when we make it about ourselves, we make it a den of robbers. When we're more concerned about our rightness and our everything, we lose it. When it becomes more about keeping ourselves comfortable than those outside. So let me ask you a couple of questions I don't know the answer to, but you might in your own life. You ready? How are we actively keeping out the outsiders? Like the Bible translation and conversation I dealt with with that, those guys. What are we actively doing to keep out the outsiders? More specifically, what am I actively doing to keep out the outsiders? If someone walks in who looks a lot, acts a lot different than me, dresses a lot different than me, am I okay putting all of my biases aside and caring for that person? Or am I defensive? Balls up, locked down. Am I actively putting obstacles in front of that person? Second, how are we passively keeping out the outsider? And this is what I think actually happens more. We don't mean to, but it's like that language. Well, we all know this is how it's been. We all got that. Well, those kind of sentiments are fine for those of us who grew up Church of Christ from the day we were born. But for an outsider who's just trying to fall in love with Jesus for the very first time, that language can be very concerning. Make you feel like you're an outcast. Like you're not really one of us. You didn't grow up in the club. You may be a Jew, but you're a Gentile Jew, not a real one. I'm the through and through, right? How are we passively doing that? This is a dumb example. You guys ever wondered why I dress the way I do when I preach? Wear Crocs, weird clothes. Because my first preaching job was at a very, very poor church. I was not poor. Because I had parents who would give me clothes. I was very poor, but my parents bought me clothes. And I used to dress up nice for every Sunday like I always had. Until one day, one of my kids, he was, in, he was just a seventh grader, walked in and said, man, I wish I had clothes like that. That hit me. I was like, ooh. So I changed. It's not wrong to dress up. It's not wrong not to dress up. But I chose this for the reasons I did. Because in that moment, a kid felt like an outsider, and that broke me. I didn't want that. I don't want anyone to feel like an outsider. At the same time, if someone walks in wearing a suit, I want them to feel just as welcome. Why? Because this is a house of prayer for who? For all nations. For all people. Poor, rich, white, or black. Christian for a long time or atheist. Anybody who wants to walk in this door, they need to be loved and cared for. And we need to make sure we're not passively putting any obstacles in front of them. So what obstacles are there? What obstacles am I setting up? What obstacles am I putting in front of people? I actually did a fun exercise, and by fun exercise, I mean not a fun exercise at all. By really self-reflecting on this, I came up with 28 things I do. 28 things I do passively that puts obstacles in front of people. 28 of them. You want to talk about a moment of recollection? 
28 things I was doing passively that was keeping people from being able to have intimacy in this house. What about you? Give it some thought this week. And finally, how are we using our insiderness? We're blessed, exceptionally. I grew up in the Church of Christ from the day I was born. I've literally never in my life had a day where I didn't have faith as a key part of my life. I grew up in a middle-class family with parents that loved me. I had everything I could want and more, which is a blessing. But how am I using that now? How am I extending my love and my voice, my wealth, and my care to the outsider? Marysville Church of Christ is an awesome place. I love it. And every day we're getting better. And every day we're being more the church God wants us to be, and I'm thankful. But right now, if Jesus walked through those doors, that asks the question, would he be flipping tables or would he be praising? Let's consider that. Let's consider our life. Let's consider our role in it. This morning, we have an opportunity, as we do every, every week, to talk to you about your faith, your life, what you're going through. We would love to have any conversation you want. The leaders will be standing in the back. Come meet us. Let's stand and let's sing.